Hello, this is Raki on the Sustainable Sounders podcast. Today I have Arthur Mamu Mani, founder of Mamu Mani Eco Parametric Architecture Studios and Fab Pub, a 3D printing store. Welcome, Arthur. Tell me about your brands, your products, services, and why you believe you are a sustainable company. Hello, everyone, uh, and thank you, Raki. So it's a big question. We are really committed to the idea that a company or technology really only makes sense if it helps people or the planet. And this is key to all of our values, which is to add meaning and impact on what it is that we do. So we have an architecture firm, which is dedicated to pushing the boundaries between design and making. And we have a 3D printing store in which we have our 3D printing that creates all kinds of designs with biomaterials. And so our goal is to close the loop of circularity. So instead of having consumers that are coming to buy something and discard it and not worry about the before and after, is to reconnect all this and start from where things come from and think all the way to where do they end up. So tell me about how you do this. Does this start with a design? Does this start with the materials? Or does this start with a purpose? Is it a combination of all of these things? Uh, it's hard to see the start in a circle. <laughs> but of course, material is essential because ultimately it ends up as a physical thing. So unless we start understanding the materials around us, we're going to struggle conceiving anything. Materials tell us stuff. They tell us you know, their constraints. They tell us how they want to be made. They tell us how to, to sort of grow or be mined or, and I think we're quite disconnected from all that process. You know, things are being made very far from us, you know, in countries that, you know, are away and then they're shipped through, you've, you know, you've seen all the issues with the Suez Canal and all that. And then they arrive to us with one swipe and then we consume them and then we put them in recycling or, Worst case in a landfill and have no idea which recycling, which landfill. And the companies don't really own that afterlife. And so, yeah, I'm, I've been really interested in, in zooming out and seeing the infrastructure that we can offer, not just, you know, providing the services as either an architect or a designer or just a shop. I, I'm very curious how to connect the dots. So there's also a bit of a paradox because you want to create things that are durable, but then you're saying you want to then also destroy them and repurpose them. And that's not how creators create. Creators don't think, I want to make something that can be destroyed. I mean, unless you're a, a Michelin star chef, in which case you create a piece of artwork that is intended to be destroyed. That's just not in the nature of creators. What do you think of that? I think everything will end up being transformed, maybe not destroyed, but I think ultimately everything changes and we're just not zooming out enough and you know human tend to see things on a human scale and that's probably one of our problem is we have developed big egos that want to see our creation last forever without realizing that really nothing does and so this process of letting go is essential in a world that needs to consider things like circularity and regeneration there's no way we can think of something just statically being always what it is. It just doesn't match life. I mean, your cells reproduce themselves, you know, and you're a new person every so often because all your cells renew in your body. And yeah, well, ultimately we disappear. Ultimately more humans will be born and it will mutate and that's natural evolution. So there is a, a dynamism. There is a bit of a, 
a different thing happening in nature than there has been in, let's say, creator's mindset or <laughs> even in consumer's mindset, you know, uh, and it's trying to reconnect that natural process and those parameters in the in the things that we buy and and are part of. I, I very much believe in empowering others and explaining things through creating systems as opposed to finished forms or finished products. It's things that people can customize, they can be part of it, they can realize, they can be creative. That's why we called it FabPub, Fabrication Public. Yeah. It's interesting because there's something spiritual about it. And your conversation there reminds me of a conversation I had with somebody who creates compost and he's you know talks about the cycle of nature and how it's all sort of born to be reborn and that circularity and i never imagined having a conversation about compost and then that conversation being so relevant in architecture as well in creation it's very uh, spiritual indeed i think the reconnection between let's say western and eastern philosophy eastern philosophies are much more circular there's the god of creation the god of destruction and they're kind of equally good to some extent, you know, in I think in Western culture, we're more used to a linearity. The world was created and here we go, a line starts and so on. So I'm very interested in that notion. And I love, you know, our first collection is called the Mandala Range. And we use that term Mandala because it's this notion of these uh, monks that spend forever doing a beautiful thing, all this to just blow it to the to the wind, right? And I mean, we we did the temple at Burning Man and we ended up burning it. And and it was, everyone is asking, well, how do you feel about that? And I thought, I mean, it's amazing. Um, first of all, an amazing therapy <laughs> to your ego. And second of all, it's just, I think it gives you a different mindset as to what creativity can be and how it could be part of a wider ritual that sacralizes things in different ways rather than just this kind of endless temple that's always here, which is rarely the case. Let's talk about materials. Give me an example of how this actually works. How do you take materials? What do you have to do to them to be able to then recreate them into something else? Talk me through the process that you have there. So maybe I can start with the, the 3D printers. Something quite amazing happened with 3D printers in that we suddenly had a machine in which you could just make something next to you at the office, turning an office into a factory, blurring the limits between, you know, a digital file, a physical object. And so that suddenly, you know, turned this process upside down because suddenly you could iterate, you could like design something, print it, check it, print again, et cetera, et cetera. Then I remember as I was doing this, discovering all these sort of open source printers and playing around with it, we were using that material called PLA, polylactic acid. And slowly I realized that this was actually made from sugar, sugarcane or corn or anything that has saccharose, <laughs> let's say. And so then I kind of got excited by this and, and, and dug a little bit deeper into it and realized it's not only comes from renewable, but it's also compostable. And, you know, you could print something, crush it and print again from it in a different form. And then you could also just ultimately put it back to the earth by composting it industrially. So this notion that plastic, you know, plastic is a big topic at the moment. Plastic just ends up in the ocean or in landfills and is a material that unfortunately is too good to be true. It's, it would, I mean, it's plastic is amazing. It's hygienic. It, you know, lasts forever. It's clean. You know, I, mean, I have a baby. So you, you want to be safe. It's a safe thing, but really it's benefits where it's problem. And so when I realized there was a plastic alternative that could be composted, I got, I just got so excited by it. And so that was PLA. 
And we are now trying to compound it with different pigments, uh, natural pigments. And you see all around me, I'm always surrounded by attempts to mix it with things like wood or coffee or you name it. It can be mixed with all kinds of stuff to make it. And and so I, I think it's this experimentation that I find, I find really interesting. And all this was enabled by 3D printing, really. I came across your work when I was at the bar in Fort Mason. And um, they told me that the bar was 3D printed, the glassware was 3D printed. And I wasn't really sure what that meant. And then obviously I sort of I looked up your work and it was it was pretty incredible. Like your work has a very ethereal quality. And looking at your the structures and the projects you've done, I can see that absolute connection there. And there's something so uplifting and uh, there's something unburdening about it, which I never imagined architecture or structure could bring. But there's a really unexpected feeling from it. Talk to me about some of the projects that you've done. I know there was an interesting one in Bali. And of course, you've mentioned Burning Man as well. Uh, talk to me about some of your favorite projects and how they've worked. Like, what were the challenges in them and what were the kind of the highlights of working on them? So the highlight is when I hear things like what you're saying. <laughs> Unburdening architecture. That's really nice. It, it's funny because I, I don't think people notice architecture much. It's, you know, you always notice music. You always sort of, you know, develop a, a, a love for, I don't know, a writer or, but, you know, architects are, are, are often just producing your everyday life, you know, the buildings around you. And, and architects are weird in that sense. We walk around and look at everything. And my wife is always like, Oh, what, what, why are you looking at this? And so it's a, it's a, it's a very anonymous, strangely enough art. And so it's, there's something very, um, special when, architecture, not just get noticed, but reaches a certain artistic value in that you have these emotions. And I, I think maybe because of, say, the mo modern movement, when we decided that form follows function and that we had to produce this, these machines, you know, to live in, let's say, we lost a little bit the, um, we talked about sacrality, but all this ornamentation, all the complexity of soul you know, these items that cater for the soul, not just for sheer function of use, but also the function to the soul. And um, I, you know, I love cathedrals or spaces of worship. They've, they've been developed for a higher purpose for faith, for ethereal, as you said, uh, functions, a connection with a higher thing. And the way they were done, they're to some extent also anonymous because they were happening throughout time, throughout iterations. And they just created the most kind of uh, breathtaking uh, dimension. And I'm really curious if we can bring that approach and that spirit into things that uh, can be in everyday, everyday life, because that would be, that would be nice if you felt that every day you come home. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't reply to your question, but I had to. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of our latest project, we are doing a, a tower in, in Bali. It's a, not a very high tower, 25 meters. But what we did is instead of just, you know, you have two solutions in, in material, either you mine material, take, you know, steel or aluminum or glass or, or you grow them, right? Wood, sugar, we mentioned. Another choice is to actually reclaim. So our client got a bridge. He found, he happened to found a, he found a, an old colonial bridge um, that was kind of in ruin. And he bought it. And then we took all the wood and planed the wood back to air, to a, a usable, uh, 
layer. It's called ironwood. It's very, very dense. So it was just eaten a little bit by these little worms, but it was not affected structurally, which is amazing. I mean, when you think it's been in the water for hundreds of years. And we took that and turned it into the, the, the new tower, which is a bit of a beacon of regeneration in that sense. And then for the skin, we used uh, rattan, which is a very, very common sort of weed that you find in the jungles. And to treat it, because often we hear a lot about bamboo structures, but bamboo doesn't last much, especially when it's not protected by some weird chemicals. So we dipped that rattan in, into some kind of uh, copper sulfate and used cooking oil <laughs> instead of epoxy. And so always try and push what can be a renewable environmental material solution for, for our structures. And so you see this kind of vertical, solid timber ironwood core and is very gentle skin that sort of connects the vertical to the horizontal, you know, the male to the female, um, trying to balance things out. Yeah. And to me, like, it's also this incredible idea that you don't have to transport materials to your location because you built on site, on location. You, you had the materials there already. And that's a hugely sustainable way of working. So what do you do? You just do you take your 3D printer out there. I mean, is it as simple yeah. as that? Yeah, we have a, what we call a mobile factory. So our printers are in shipping containers <laughs> and we drop them on site and print from files. So files can travel at the speed of light. There's no Brexit for emails, you know, there's no custom fees. So it's brilliant. But the printer itself is what makes its way to the location. And so that's our dream, really, to have a series. We call them Temple of Circularity because we'd have these hubs that are shipping containers that can travel around. And then you have this community of worldwide designers, let's say, and they know they can have access to these local machines. That's where, you know, FAPA would eventually be, I hope. Yeah. And there's no waste because you obviously you just you're digitally creating just what you need. So you're not having extras and offcuts. Or stock. So when it comes to a shop, you're, you're stocking a lot. You're, you need to make massive batch order to justify to make a mold. If you just print, you know, you print something. And also each print can be different theoretically. So you don't need to have one mold. And you remember what I mentioned about modernity where you had like just one mold fit, fit all, you know? Well, now we talk about diversity and, and, and how and inclusion. Like imagine I'm a bit shorter. I just want a chair that's smaller. Imagine, I don't know, I like this pattern versus that. Like, why not? Like, we don't have a mold. It breaks a mold. That's to me, is another really brilliant aspect of it. Yeah, this level of customization, personalization, to account for all of our differences and embrace them instead of saying, you know, instead of putting labels on, saying, well, you're too tall for this or you're too short for that. Yep. Instead, you're actually embracing all the differences and saying, okay, we work around you. That sounds like the ultimate luxury. A ultimate, I like this ultimate luxury. It's, it can be, uh, you know, overwhelming to think we put so much trust in you. You know, like I, you know, when we say you can all be designers, it's, it's people are like, no, 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 no. I'm not a, I'm not a designer. No, 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 no. Yeah. You know, like people are so used to be placed in boxes to some extent. I think society kind of requires that from, from all of us. And so when we're told, wow, I can do that. You know, when we build a temple at Burning Man, we had non, architects, we had people from all walks of life. And it was really nice because they realized they can build stuff like, you know, <laughs> and, and they're like, wow, really? I can you know, hold a drill. I can build a structure of that dimension. It's, it's, it's very, there's something very special in, in reconnecting with, with the objects around you uh, rather than just buy them. Yeah. What I really like is this idea of labels and breaking free from labels. 
So you have your um, a collection of the Mandela range. And when I remember when I visited your offices, I was looking at your collections and I was looking at it thinking, I wonder if that's a table or is it a stool or is it a stand or is it a decorative item? And I wasn't sure. And then you told me it could be any of those things because it's multi-purpose. And I loved that. And I feel like we are so accustomed to having labels and people telling us the function of things, but we stopped thinking for ourselves. And I think we need to break out of that a little bit and say, well, no, this can also be multi-purpose. It can be used differently. And it encourages us to be more creative instead of just following and doing what we're told and accepting the label that it's on. Yeah, I, I love it. I love that you felt that. I, I, I like that you take it positively because a lot of people are like, dude, like, what is it? Just tell me what is it? Well, you tell me. And I think, yeah, again, we're so used to labels and categories. And so it's refreshing, but also kind of weird to be told, well, what do you see in that? You know, what do you want from it? And it's, it's, a, it's a process. People will, will, I hope, embrace that approach. But I imagine it's quite difficult then to sell a product like that online, especially. Because you kind of, when you think about the filters and the drop-down boxes, as you type in your search words, like, what, what would you even look for? It's a very real practical question. I mean, I guess you could, you could do it. I mean, one doesn't prevent the other. You can still say it's a table, it's in the table category, but somehow it ends up in another category called, I don't know, the, the, a planter, right? And But suddenly you put a plan there. And so you start guiding people. And ultimately, you can even, you know, show or have a button that says, be even more creative, like personalize even more. And then you can always reach out to us and have our expertise on it. I, I really hope we can guide people. I mean, we need to be really teachers more than designers, really, just to explain all the possibilities. If you create a system, that's what happens. Like you can change it like this, you can change it like that. And people can go online and play with these, what we call parameters. That's what's called, I mean, that's parametric design. That's what it is. Different parameters lead to different outcome. This is so interesting because I feel like you make people become more creative. How did you get into this? How did you get into architecture? How did you get into 3D printing? What has been exciting for you? Why do you care about it? Ooh, long question. So without telling all my life, my dad is a computer scientist. And also before that was a math teacher. And my mom is an environmentalist. So they, they're very much in between sort of let's say, technology and, and the, the science of ecology, let's say, and how they can be merged to some extent. And so I, I always grew up with this education that the two could be uh, leading to a new way, let's say, to think yeah. technology in relation to the environment. So that was my background. And when I studied architecture and I came here in the UK, I worked for an architect called Zaha Hadid, who was a, a wonderful architect that broke the boundaries of buildings having to be sort of straight and you know, suddenly all the buildings looked like this swooshes in the air. And, and because they were so complex, technology had to be sort of built around that notion rather than the other way around. And so I, you know, I got excited by it. I, I studied in a school that called the Architectural Association that teaches you how to use technology to, to create, you know, systems in that sense. And so once I graduated, that's the year that RepRap, this 3D printers, uh, open source 3D printer came out. And so I couldn't help but, you know, buy one and, and start assembling it and play with it. And everyone looked at me like, what are you doing? You're an architect. But I, I sort of felt like this would grow and become something bigger because it was just so exciting. And I think the combination of parametric design and 3D printing had a real empowering 
democratic dimension to it because I felt like, okay, everyone will have these printers. Uh, parametric design means everyone could customize designs. And so the two brought together will have a, a real revolutionary aspect to them. That, that's how I just got so excited by this. And so just, you know, created the companies as soon as I realized the potential. Hearing about your parents, you make so much more sense. <laughs> like I can see now exactly because you have that, you have that mathematical precision, but you also have that care for the planet. And mm. I can see that's come together to create your companies and your business. Let's talk a little bit about FabPub. It's an interesting name. Why have you called it that? What does it mean? So it's got several layers. Obviously, it's fabrication public, which is because we wanted to empower people to get into things they don't usually get into. Because I think it's got a, as I was mentioning, it's got a, a really wonderful reconnection to your objects and to your physical environment. But maybe the behind story was that uh, when I founded it, I was squatting a pub. <laughs> You know, in Hoxton Square in London. And I, as you know, a friend of mine is a developer and is like, I heard you broke up with your uh, girlfriend. I know you don't really have a home at the moment. Uh, we have this pub and I think you can do something cool with it. And so hey, here you go. Here's the key. Just go and be the quote unquote guardian of it. And so I ended up in that pub and started to fill it up with all these machines, laser cutting, 3D printing. And so I remember this very British, I had a very fancy name for the company called the People's Atelier, very French. In reference to, you know, May 68, they had all these posters. There was this whole movement about bringing art back to the people. And the British guy's like, forget about this. Like, you know, keep it simple. <laughs> Fab pub. And so that's how the name ended up being that. Very English. <laughs> very English. Perfect. Well, that, yeah, I was expecting something drink orientated when I was looking for you guys. It could I be. Like, I mean, maybe okay. sugar juice, you know. I, we're still thinking of the experience in, this, in the shops, but... I have, why not? You know, I love this. You know, I I come from Paris, like I'm born in Paris and we have these cafes where everyone sit down and it's like kind of everyone looking at each other and it's like, whereas I came to the pub and everyone in the street and it's got this really nice, democratic, inclusive, just rough and ready. I don't know. I really like pubs. I, I love the, I love the, the, the British culture in that sense. Um, very different from the French, which I love too, obviously, but it, I don't know. There's something. There's something special about uh, that experience. So uh, it worked. I like it. <laughs> it's short. <laughs> and people love pubs. So I think you've done a, a magical <laughs> thing there. So even if people are looking for something else, they're going to find <laughs> you instead. And they'll definitely be happy to have done that. <laughs> Probably eat more healthy. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I know that some of your work is inspired by the Eiffel Tower. What do mm. you think of the Eiffel Tower? Like, is it, is it amazing, incredible? Why? Uh, yeah, there's so many, there's so many aspects of the Eiffel Tower I love. One that it kind of came to be against all odds. You know, uh, there was this competition. People suggested these really traditional, like someone suggested a giant Greek column, you know, uh, like safe, you know, kind of thing. And then Eiffel was like, well, you know, obviously I want to, he wanted to use all the, the technology of the time, you know, he worked with um, new materials and he was just excited to show how light something can be and, and be a beacon for its time. Like Obviously, when you find new technology, it's really nice to try and push it to show new possibilities. And, I, you know, I, the Eiffel Tower is, is so light. I, I think I, I heard something that it had the density of foam or something. It's amazingly light. It's, it's got this real, you mentioned ethereal, it, it's really floating. It's all prefabricated. So it's all made in the workshop of Eiffel. And he had to 
find a way to finance it because when there was this competition, he said, well, how about I pay for it? And then you get, just give me the revenues once you open it. Most clever thing in the world. It's like these actors that say, you know, don't pay me a fee, just pay me revenues on your on, on the income of the movie. I, I just, it's so entrepreneurial and a lot of the artists hated it. <laughs> and I do feel like, you know, artists can lose connection with the general public or the universal emotions. And I, I really feel like when something is beautiful, it's kind of universally beautiful. I really believe that. And Devil Tower is the most visited place in the world. And yet it was hated by <laughs> a lot of the artists who wrote, they wrote a letter to dismantle it. I also love that it was meant to be dismantled. I, I love that it stayed despite, you know, I always had that secret hope the Burning Man Temple would somehow be dismantled, but, you know, we obviously didn't manage, but I know there's so many poetic aspects to it and it's got that precision and yet that poetry to it. So there's many other stuff that I like about it, but you can watch the movie. <laughs> I think you've inspired me to watch the movie and yeah. I knew I knew you had quite a strong opinion of the Eiffel Tower, so I'm glad that you've shared that. <laughs> Talking about sustainability, just to loop it back there, how do you make sustainable choices in your daily life? Like how far do you go? What do you think is worth it? What do you challenge? What do you think wish was different? So, you know, I'm far, far from perfect in that sense. You know, I, I fully acknowledge the practicalities of, of life and also the, the purchasing power of people being very different. You know, we often, you know, say, oh, people should remove plastic or they should do this or that or remove um, single use. And we realize that you often penalize the poorest when you do that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of very careful in, in, in kind of speaking about this. All I can say is that I always ask questions. Like I'm, I'm a nightmare for whoever's selling stuff because I will go quite deep. If people have claim of sustainability, um, I will start asking, you know, deeper things like, ah, okay, you're, you're using bioplastic. Which one? Ah, you're, you're saying it can be composted. Where? You're using sugarcane. Where do you grow them? So, so, you know, trying to dive a little bit deeper into the layers, because you could easily lose, you might want something to be sustainable, but you might not realize that along the way you've used, I don't know, epoxy. I don't know, a lot of bamboo flooring is full of epoxy, for example. And that's because people just, they're told something in screen, and so they just accept it, which is normal. People trust people. But I think, you know, a little bit, I don't know, like cigarettes, right? We Even if we were told all kinds of stuff, uh, thank God we interrogated these a lot. And so I think we need to do the same process, you know? And so I just do that. I ask, I ask a lot of questions as I buy, I don't know, my, my nappies are made of bioplastics <laughs> from my baby. <laughs> Doesn't mean I found the composter yet. And also, I guess I can see it as a bit of a, a life decision, you know, to start paying a little bit more, but knowing that financially, you know, the, the environmental cost is somehow connected to the financial cost. Cause at the moment it's not like, Plastic is easy, it's cheap, but it obviously damages the environment a lot. So its financial cost does not match its environmental cost. So we all, I think, need to acknowledge there needs to be some adjustment here. But I think that's why I'm excited to offer a new way of selling stuff. Because if you were part of, I don't know, if you were part of movements instead of companies, so if companies offered the entire life cycle, they come and pick it up after, you know, there's a lot of companies that do that nowadays where... You're not just buying a product, you're being part of a movement, of a, of, I don't want to say club, it sounds exclusive, but you're part of 
a family of people that share values. And I think that's the new relationship we'll have with companies. And so it's, it's, it raises a lot of questions, like in what form, you know, and, and also for companies to deal with things they don't usually deal with. But yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting what you said about, so you dig deeper and you ask questions. I think that's possible because you have that technical knowledge. Actually, I have to say that even when people talk about industrial compostable, I don't know what that means. I don't know what, what should I be doing and who should be responsible for an industrial compostable item? Should that go to my council? Do I need to take it somewhere different? But I now also recognize that because I have my own brand, so I understand fashion very well. So when I see a fashion garment or clothing, I know exactly where to look, what questions to ask, because that's my field. But you put me into another field and I'd be lost. I wouldn't even know what questions I should be asking to, to find out if something is sustainable. And so we have to think about how much responsibility or burden should the consumer be carrying and how much should be in labeling or legislation to help encourage better practices or to make labeling clearer so that you don't need a degree to understand if something is sustainable or not. Well, you know, I, so I'm a, I'm a teacher. I teach at University of Westminster and I, I can't help wanting to have people be more leaders in that sense. You know, I think we're in a democracy. So the government is us really. And so to wait for the system would just be like, you know, waiting for us somehow. So that's how I see it. And so I think we should always ask ourselves, what can I do? And, you know, being French, I see the French blame a lot. This is. <laughs> That's what the something that I liked here, which was this entrepreneurial aspect, the idea that we can change stuff ourselves through, you know, raising funds, through, you know, coming up with new solutions rather than do everything through legislation or through the top down. Of course, it's important, of course, but I like empowering people to change things from within and telling them they can and showing them how. I, I, I much rather that because I, I obviously it's hard to control if a law will pass into action and, you know, I can go in the street and say, pass that law or do this or, you know, Greta Thunberg, right? Like, oh, end, pl end plastic now. Great. Thank you. How? Like, you know, it's just how and, and why and which bit of plastic and which bit of petrol and for what? Like, it's so, it's, as you say, it's technical. And so therefore we can't summarize it with one I don't know how you call it when you go with a demonstration, like one word, like it's not, we, we need to, we all need to ask questions. We all need, and you said it yourself, it's like, oh, okay. I didn't know I had to think of compostability. So I'm here to kind of say, let's think about it. And if you say, well, how? It's like, great, how? Yeah, let's do it. Let's think. There's so much stuff to answer questions now. Google, chat GPT, like it's, you know, once you have the question, there are the answers, but the hard bit is the questions. Ooh, and I think actually... That's one of the functions and the purpose of this series is to introduce people. We're not a shopping channel, but we're an education channel. So to introduce people to companies, brands, people, different ways of thinking, different ways of doing things, different ways of being. And I always think the founder of a sustainable company is a really good source for that. Like they, cause they're already doing it. They're in action. And maybe they're small, but actually it's that tipping point because once these ideas become bigger and bigger, then they naturally will take over and they'll supersede the previous ideas. So I think there is something of an upward spiral of let's share ideas, let's share different ways of doing things. Yeah. Now I can't let you go without telling me <laughs> what the difference between industrial compostable 
<laughs> but possibly. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go on Google. Come on, no, no, if I've got course. you here. So, so usually when you compost food, let's say, you use home compost, really. You can put, you, you know, you put bacteria and you put food and then it's sort of, and you just seal it and then somehow the bacteria start eating the food and so on. An industrial compost is doing this on an industrial scale. It controls the temperature, keeps it at a certain degree. To, uh, to compost um, PLA, you need 60 degrees of temperature constantly and 100% humidity, which is very specific. So the industrial processes will control that and make sure that you really just decompose everything, which is very hard to do at home. I mean, that's probably our one of our biggest challenge here is to actually try and find reliable partners or do it ourselves or find how we're going to do it for materials that we're not used to composting. We're used to composting food, obviously, but, uh, you know, bioplastic is, is relatively new. So, you know, fingers crossed as part of our journey. And, you know, if anyone is listening and has ideas or anything, they feel free to reach out, really. It's a collaborative journey, as you say. Thank you for explaining that to me and the listeners. I have no doubt that someone out there is already inspired, is planning on or working on composting for bioplastics, as there are so many people feeling awakened to making a positive difference out there. Uh, I also wanted to thank you for your time today, Arthur. It's been so eye-opening, really insightful and educational. Seeing your work in the Fortnum and Mason Bar in London and then your other projects online, there really is such a magical and uplifting feeling about them. You truly embody this whole catering for the soul, not just for the sheer function of utility. Embracing circularity over a linear model. At the start of this episode, you said you wanted your work to have meaning and impact on people and planet to push boundaries. And you were truly doing this. Thank you so much, Raki. And, and congratulations on this uh, podcast. It's so nice. As soon as I heard founders, sustainable founders, I, I loved it. Because as you say, people don't know and it's good to spread the word. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you.